And Lord, we do come to you in Jesus' name, praying for the power of the Holy Spirit upon the Word. What a joy it is, Lord, to be able to open this book week after week and to have you communicate truth and for you to nurture our souls by it. Lord, we know that we are on a pilgrimage to heaven and we need strength every week to live that pilgrimage. And so, Lord, your sheep have come today from all over the place in different walks of life. They all have their own struggles, their own problems. Lord, would you uh, minister to their hearts through this wonderful story of Jesus today and cause it to have power in their life? Lift him up in our midst, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The author C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, made this very famous quote. He said, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. And the text that we're going to look at this morning is one of those sayings of Jesus where we're forced to make a choice about him. We're forced to decide, is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he the Son of God? Is he Lord? And so all of us need to come to that position this morning where we make up our minds, who is Jesus Christ? And if he is who he claimed to be, what are we going to do about that? Now Luke has been laboring and taking pains to help us understand the authority of Jesus week after week as we've studied through this gospel. In chapter 4, verse 32, it says, They were astonished at Jesus' teaching, for his word possessed authority. Or in Luke 4, 36, when Jesus cast out the demon from the man in the synagogue, all the people said, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. So Jesus, up until this time in Luke's gospel, has taken authority over demons, disease, even the animals. Remember, he brought the fish into the net with his great miraculous catch of fish. And then last week we saw that he's even... Lord over the most dreaded disease of the first century, which was leprosy. And today we're going to see that not only are those things true, but Jesus also has the authority to forgive sins. Now we're going to be looking at four different groups of people in the story. There are four different groups. There are the religious leaders. We have the paralyzed man. We have the four friends of that paralyzed man. And then we've got Jesus Christ himself. So, if you can remember these four words, you can remember this sermon. Delegation, desperation, determination, and domination. Okay? The four Ds. Remember those four words, and you understand this text. The delegation of the religious leaders, the desperation of the paralyzed man, the determination of the four friends, and the domination of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, let's look at each one of those. First, the delegation of the religious leaders. Look at verse 17. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea, and from Jerusalem. 
and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Now, where is this event taking place? Luke doesn't tell us. But if you were to cross-reference the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, you'd find out that this was taking place in Capernaum. And Matthew says this was Jesus' own city. Now that's odd, kind of odd, isn't it? Because Jesus didn't grow up in Capernaum. He grew up in Nazareth. But by now, people are referring to Capernaum as Jesus' own city, probably because he made that his base of operations. Simon Peter lived in Capernaum. And whenever Jesus needed a place to spend the night, they would go to Peter's home and they'd spend the night there. The disciples were always welcome and Peter's wife must have been very hospitable. And so that was just his base of operations. But we're also told that this was um, in Capernaum at home. What do you mean at home? Jesus didn't have a home, right? Do you remember he said birds of the air have nests, foxes have dens, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head? Jesus never owned a home. But according to Mark chapter 2, Jesus was there at home. Well, evidently, he just sort of become one of the gang in Peter's house. Peter and his mother-in-law and his wife, they'd all just sort of adopted Jesus and his disciples, and they felt perfectly at home in Peter's house. So it's my conviction that where this is taking place is probably Peter's own house. And that makes sense to me because this story is told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but Mark is the one that gives the fullest account of all of them. And remember, Mark was the traveling companion of Peter. He traveled around with Peter. He was his assistant. In fact, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter says that Mark is his son. So Mark's traveling around. He's compiling information from which he would write this gospel one day. He's getting his information from the first-hand account of Peter himself, a disciple, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So it must have been interesting for Peter and Peter's wife to look up that morning and see someone taking apart their own roof. <laughs> yeah, what would you guys think? This is great. I mean, th this is one of the stories that we never forget, right? You hear this story, and you're, if you're Peter, and you actually see this thing happen, you're going to be telling this story to your grandkids and your great-grandkids. <laughs> so this is just one of those stories. Now, who was present at this story? Well, verse 17 says that it was the, the Pharisees and the religious teachers, the scribes. On one of those days, as he was teaching, it says, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with them to heal. Notice that. We have Pharisees and teachers of the law, and where have they come from? Every village of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. So we've got all kinds of religious leaders. Well, now, why do you suppose they were there to hear Jesus on this day? Do you think they were coming because they wanted to sit under the authority of the Word of God and be changed and transformed by it? No. They're there to scrutinize Jesus' ministry and evaluate whether He was who He claimed to be. They're examining Him. They're going to make a judgment upon Jesus as to whether He is who He's claiming to be or not. By this time, Jesus has already claimed to be the Messiah. And he's been doing works of power to prove it. He's been casting demons out and healing the sick. He's even been causing fish to come into these, these guys' nets so that they fill two boats and the boats start to sink after they've toiled all night and hadn't caught anything. So they've heard the reports of Jesus 
and they know that the f people are flocking to hear him and they feel the responsibility of making sure that uh, they, they need to check him out because they are sort of the, um, the ones watching over the people of Israel. They feel a responsibility. He could be a deceiver. So they come from every village of Judea and Galilee and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Now, notice the posture that they assume here. What's their posture in verse 17? They're sitting. You say, well, so what? Well, <laughs> the teacher sits. When Jesus would teach, he would sit down, they would stand up. We do the opposite today. I stand up, you sit down. But it was different in the first century. The teacher would assume the sitting position. And notice also that verse 18, no, verse 19, it says, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd. There were probably hundreds of people at this guy's house on this day. There were so many people that you couldn't get another person in the door. Now, it's interesting that these religious leaders would be sitting if there are that many people and the crowds are so big. Because if you want to, you want to get the most people into a room, you don't have them sit down. You have them stand up and they're shoulder to shoulder like sardines, right? But these guys weren't going to sit down. Why wouldn't, I mean, they were going to sit down. They wouldn't stand. Why would they assume a sitting position? Yes, they were unwilling to concede that Jesus was the one in authority. And so they came because they felt they were the ones in authority and they're judging Jesus Christ as to what he's teaching. So they take the sitting position. So that's who we have here. We have this delegation of these religious leaders. Now, secondly, look at the desperation of the paralyzed man. Verse 18 says, Behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. He's paralyzed. He lost the, the use of his legs, and probably he'd lost the use of his arms as well. Have you all know anything about Johnny Erickson Tata? She's a paraplegic since she was a 17-year-old, and she's in her 50s, I think now, maybe even her 60s. So for years and years and years, she's been a paraplegic. This man was like that. He couldn't walk. He couldn't crawl. He couldn't work. I mean, think about what it was like in the first century for a man who was a paralytic. There were no government agencies to take care of people like that, like we have today. He was desperate. He, he had to throw himself on the mercy of some gracious family member or some friend who would take care of him because he couldn't take care of himself, he couldn't provide for himself, and he couldn't protect himself. If someone wanted to hurt him, he had no hands to use to ward it off. I mean, he was absolutely defenseless, powerless, you might say he was in a state of total inability. That's where he was. Absolutely dependent upon the mercy and the help of other people. Now, how do you think he felt when he started to hear a report that there was a miracle worker that was claiming to be the Messiah? He's hearing reports that this guy actually has healed other people like him. Other paralytics. You suppose hope starts to rise in his heart? Well, maybe, maybe I could be healed. And he starts talking to his friends. What do you think? Is there any chance? Do you think there's any chance at all that if I got to Jesus, he might heal me? And so hope starts to rise within his heart. So he starts talking to his friends. Do you know, the, this paralyzed man here 
is a really good illustration of an unsaved person. A person who doesn't have a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ because spiritually he's paralyzed. He's impotent. Remember last week we noticed that it is, according to man, it's impossible to be saved. That's what the Bible says. That's what Jesus taught. Impossible. Not just that it's hard. Impossible. Man can't save himself and he can't contribute to his salvation. There is one Savior and it's not us. It's Jesus Christ. And he must save and he must save alone. And this man being paralyzed is a perfect illustration of the spiritually unsaved person. Over in Romans chapter 5, the Bible says, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For while we were still, what does it say? Helpless. The NIV says powerless. This man was helpless. This man was powerless. He's a great illustration of the lost person who desperately needs somebody else to do something for him that he can't do for himself. So he's desperate. Now, thirdly, let's look at the, term, the determination of these four friends. Chapter 5, verse 18. It says, They were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. So somehow... This guy says, hey, hey, guys, he had some friends. He had maybe their family. I don't know who they were, but he had four people that cared enough for him, and he was able to persuade them, hey, would you take me to him? I just have this weird feeling inside that if you could just get me to him, he'll heal me. So he was able to convince them, and it says here that they took him on a bed. Now, this bed was more like a stretcher. A primitive structure, like paramedics carry people on today. Over in John chapter 5, there was another paralyzed man that was healed. And it said that uh, Jesus told him, Arise, take up your pallet, and go home. So this was like a pallet. Something you just lie on, maybe a, a blanket or two to keep it soft enough that you wouldn't be torturous to lie on it. But it was just that thing that he would lie on day after day and probably beg for food or for money just to survive the day. So four of them are bringing this man on this stretcher, this pallet. It's, good, it's a good thing that he had four friends because it's going to take four of them to get him there, one on each side. I just participated in a graveside service where we actually carried the, uh, the pine box that my father was buried in. And there were four of us. I, get, no, I think there's six of us, actually. And it was heavy. So he's going to need at least four guys to carry this stretcher. Now, notice it says in verse 19, but finding no way to bring him in. There were so many people crowded around that house that it was like a swarm of bees in a honeycomb. You know, there were just everybody, the, the inside of the house was completely packed out. Nobody could get in. And the doorways and the windows were crowded. People were trying to peer in over each other. All of that's crowded. There was nowhere to get in. And so I love the determination of these guys. Most guys would say, well, I'm sorry, bud. We're, there's just no way we're going to be able to get you to Jesus. Look, there's hundreds of people here. I mean, there's just no way we can get inside this house. It just must not be God's timing today. God and His providence has just shut the door. So they found a shut door, a closed door, didn't they? But instead of giving up, they looked for an open roof. <laughs> 
There's no way to get through the door, no way to get through the windows. Hey, let's try the roof. The problem is it wasn't an open roof. It wasn't a skylight that you could open up and drop him through. It was a re regular roof. And we have to understand some of the, the customs of the day back then. Um, a Jewish housetop was flat. That's why in Acts chapter 10 it says that Peter went up on the housetop to pray. It wasn't like our housetops where you're going to fall off if you go up there. It was a flat roof. And people would go up there to pray or to meditate or they'd sit in their chair in the evening when the cool breezes came through. Or sometimes they'd even have a little flower garden or something up on their rooftop. It was habitable space. It's like our front or our backyard. They, that's the way they would treat their housetop. And there was a stairway that would go up. And so these guys carried this guy on the stretcher up the stairs, up to the top of that rooftop. And the roofs were made of tiles, either wood or clay tiles, and then they were filled in with mud and straw to seal it up. And so they probably took some kind of a tool up there, a shovel or an axe or whatever, and they started just digging up the roof. And they dug it, and they dug it, and they kept digging it until light appeared. And they kept digging it until it was big enough to lower a man through it. And they must have attached ropes to each corner of that little stretcher, that pallet, and they slowly let him down. Now, consider the, the courage of this paralytic man. What if these guys let his, the head side of that pallet down before the back side? This guy's going to slide right off. And he doesn't have any hands to protect or break his fall. He's going to... I don't know, he's going to probably die of a, a broken neck or something. So it was ingenious, it showed their tenacity, and it was courageous. I love these guys. They loved their friend, and they were willing to do anything that it took to get their friend to Jesus Christ. And folks, you and I need that kind of determination. How determined are you to get your friends or your family or your neighbors or your co-workers to Jesus. Let's just be real. Are, are, are we as determined as they were? I don't think so. I don't think I am. I want to be. They weren't going to take no for an answer, were they? The way was blocked? Well, no problem. We're going to find another way. We need to be absolutely determined that we're going to do something, whatever is in our power, to bring someone to Jesus Christ. I remember reading a story this last week. I just thought this was great. There was a, a preacher back in Kentucky who was invited to preach in a, a, a church some distance away. And so he came to that church expecting the usual crowd, which is about 20 or 25 people. But when he got there, their little chapel was filled to capacity about 250 people. And he was dumbfounded because he had preached there before. Where'd all these people come from? And come to find out, one of the church members who had a large business and employed lots of people had told his employees that he would pay them a day's wages if they would come and hear the preaching of the gospel. And so that's how he got the church full. <laughs> people were willing to come to receive a day's wage. Are we as committed as that man was? What are we willing to sacrifice? What are we willing to give up? What kind of effort are we willing to put forth in order to see people come into the presence of Jesus and hear his gospel? And so I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you to be thinking about who you can invite here. Because we know the gospel is presented every single week here at the bridge. 
If it's not through the sermon in some way, it's always through the Lord's Supper. We're always reveling in what Jesus Christ has done in his death and his resurrection for us. So think about it. Who, who are the people in my life that need to be in the presence of Jesus and need someone to bring them there? They just need an invitation. They need someone to go pick them up maybe and bring them. So we find the determination of these four friends. But let's look fourthly at the domination of the Lord Jesus. The absolute authority of Jesus Christ in this situation. Just as he is in every other situation. He is an authority over demons, over disease. In this situation, he's in control over the religious leaders, the paralysis of this man, and even the sins that this guy has committed. Now, look at chapter 4, verse 20. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. Now there's a couple of, of questions that just immediately arise in my mind. Wait a minute. It says, he saw their faith. How do you see somebody's faith? Faith is invisible, right? Faith is a matter of the heart and the mind. It's a matter of trust in someone or something. You can't see faith, but you can see the results of faith, can't you? So Jesus saw, as this man is being lowered, right in the midst before him, their faith. You know, picture the scene with me, okay? Let's say you're Simon Peter, and you live in that house, so you get to be inside the house when Jesus is teaching. And all of a sudden, you hear these raps on top of your ceiling, and you go, what in the world is that? Some woodpecker or something? <laughs> and it just keeps happening. Bang, bang, bang. And they get louder and louder. And pretty soon dust starts raining down on your head. And you look up and you see sunlight where there was a ceiling before. And you see four sweaty-faced men looking down on you from the roof. And, and someone yells, hey, you guys, knock it off. We're trying to hear the master here teach. And they say, I'm, I'm sorry, we can't. We can't do that. We've got to get our friend down to Jesus. And they just keep banging away with their shovels and their axes. And I don't know if Jesus stopped preaching or not. But pretty soon, the opening was big enough for them to lower this man down right into the midst of Jesus, right in front of him. Maybe on somebody's lap, because the place was so crowded. And notice what Jesus says. He says to him, My son, or man, your sins are forgiven you. So the first surprising thing about this is that he sees their faith. Does Jesus see your faith? When he looks down from heaven at your life today, does he see your faith? Does he see that your values and the priorities of your life are different than they used to be? Does he see when you use your money that he sees faith in the use of your money? When he looks at the way you use your time and your energy and your talents, does he see faith there? Wouldn't it be great to know Jesus looks down and he sees our faith? He sees a changed life. He sees a transformed life because he's the one that's transformed it. So that's the first surprising thing. The second surprising thing is what he says. Man, your sins are forgiven you. Well, wait a minute. Jesus, I'm paralyzed. I didn't come to get my sins forgiven. I want to get healed. 
Jesus doesn't even address <laughs> the, the obvious need that this man has. That's surprising. Now, Jesus, why aren't you addressing his paralysis? And I think there's two reasons for that. Number one, because salvation is infinitely more important than physical healing. To have your sins forgiven is far more important than to have your body healed. Now, we believe that God heals here at the bridge. We believe that. We pray for people to be healed. But you know what? Even if you had to live with paralysis your entire life but went to heaven, I don't care how bad your life was here, it's okay. Heaven's a lot longer than living here in this earth. Living this, on this earth is like a blip compared to eternity. And you could have a perfectly whole body. And if you end up in hell, who cares? You're going to be in torment for the rest of eternity. Never ending. So Jesus puts the priority where it needs to be. This man needs to have his sins forgiven. That's more important than physical healing. But then the second reason I think he does this is because Jesus has an agenda here. You see, Jesus knows that he wants to teach a really important lesson. And he wants these religious leaders to get the lesson, and he wants all the people that are there to get the lesson. The lesson has to do with who he is. And so he's setting everybody up to teach them something that they need to know. And that issue is who he is. Notice how they respond. Verse 21, the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now that's a pretty good question. They expected the answer, well, nobody can forgive sins but God alone. Would you agree that that's true? Nobody can forgive a sin except for God. If one of you came up to Kelly because you'd lost your temper and belted him in the mouth, and then you came to me and said, Brian, I'm sorry that I, forg that I just belted Kelly in the mouth. Will you forgive me? I say, I, I can't forgive you for that. You've got to go deal with Kelly. He's the one that you sinned against. You didn't sin against me. You sinned against him, right? And so for Jesus to forgive sins must be that he's claiming to be God because every sin ultimately is committed against God. So he's wanting to push their buttons. He's wanting to get them to think about who he is. He's not just a normal human teacher. He's not just a miracle worker. His essential nature, his identity is different from a human being. He's the son of God. He's God the son. And he's pressing that point home. So the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Now it was true that if Jesus was not God, it was blasphemous for him to claim that he could forgive sins. Wouldn't you agree? That would be blasphemous. That would be like me claiming, I can forgive all your sins. No, you can't, because <laughs> you're just like me. But if Jesus is different than the rest of us, that's not a blasphemous claim. They never stopped to ask themselves, could he be the very Son of God? They weren't even thinking on that level. And that's why they assumed that he was blaspheming. Now look at verse 22. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Notice this. It's clear from Matthew and Mark that they didn't speak this out loud. 
This was just going on in their minds, in their hearts. They were wondering. And Jesus knew they were wondering about him committing blasphemy in their hearts. So, not only does he claim to be able to forgive sins, thereby being God, but then he's able to read their minds, which would give them a clue, maybe he is. Who else can read my mind and my thought and my hearts? And then verse 23, Jesus is going to press the point. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you, or to, or to say, rise and walk. Now what would you say? What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you, or rise and walk? I would say it's easier to say, your sins are forgiven. Let me explain why. Because I can say that. I can say, all of your sins are forgiven. How are you going to know? How am I going to know whether they were or weren't? But if I tell you, rise up and walk, and you stay on the ground and don't rise up and walk, you know my words lack power. So it's a lot easier for me to say the first one because nobody will ever know if I it had any power or not. It's a lot more difficult to say, rise, get up, and go home. And so Jesus, that's why he says in the next verse, but that the Son of Man, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. See, what he's wanting to do is to show in a demonstrable, tangible way that he's not just an ordinary human being. In order for you to know that I have authority on earth to forgive sins, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So evidently, this miracle was supposed to be a sign that Jesus could forgive sins. He demonstrates power in the visible natural realm to show that he has power in the invisible spiritual realm. Notice the result. Verse 25, immediately he rose up before them. Immediately. He didn't have to work up to this or something. Immediately he received strength. He rose up before them. He picked up what he had been lying on and he went home glorifying God. So... He was carried on this bed, and now he's carrying the bed that he was carried on. And he's walking home with the bed under his arm. I, I wonder if he tossed it in the garbage heap on the way home. Hey, I'm not going to need this anymore. I'm healed. Can you imagine what would be going through his mind? The exhilaration and the joy. I'm healed. I'm walking. And then verse 26, an amazement seized them all, the religious leaders and the common people. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. They saw three extraordinary things. They saw Jesus read their minds. They saw Jesus forgive sins. And they saw Jesus heal a man who was paralyzed. They had never seen a man do any of those things before. And so they're struck with amazement. They're glorifying God. They're filled with awe. They're saying, hey, we've seen extraordinary things today. Now, I want to bring all this home by asking you who you most identify with. The religious leaders, the paralyzed man, or the four friends? First of all, the religious leaders. Do you identify with them? They came not to sit under the authority of Jesus' teaching and his word. They came to scrutinize it and to criticize it and to examine it and to make a judgment on it. 
Are you an unbeliever who is sort of a sermon critic? You'll show up at church, but not because you really believe the Bible is the Word of God. You're trying to find something wrong with it. And there are people like this. Maybe there are some here today like that. Where they'll come to church, but in the back of their head they're thinking, uh, I don't believe that's true. Maybe part of the Bible's true, but not that part. That's ridiculous that a man would be swallowed by a fish. Or that an axe head would actually float to the surface of the water. Or that the sea would part and hundreds of thousands of people would walk through on dry ground. Or that somebody would be caught up in a chariot into heaven. Or that someone would be born having a virgin mother. It's just crazy. I, maybe the Bible has some good moral teachings, but you can't believe the historicity of the Bible. And so they come as a critic. And you know, the reason they come to that conclusion probably is because they really don't want to submit to the Bible. Because if they can punk, poke holes in the veracity and truthfulness of the Bible, what they've done is said, okay, well, if the Bible can't be trusted in this area, then how do we know it can be trusted about God? How do we know it can be trusted that there is a judgment day to come? How do we know it can be trusted that we're going to have to give an account to this God who has made us? How do we know it can be trusted when it speaks about eternal heaven and eternal hell? How do we know it can be trusted when it says you must repent if you'll be saved? And so it gives them a loophole. They're off the hook now because they've come as a critic. So do you identify with those folks today? Yeah, part of the Bible's good, but I don't think this part over here could be trusted. I would encourage you to take another look. The Bible has been fought against for hundreds of years by skeptics and by agnostics and by atheists, and it has stood the test of time. You can look in the books of archaeology and you'll see evidence that supports the truthfulness of Scripture. You can look at the prophecies concerning Jesus Christ, hundreds of them, and you can find fulfillment of each one of them. Now, you say, well, no, I, I don't really identify with the religious leaders. Well, do you identify with the paralyzed man? Actually, utterly helpless to do anything to save yourself. Maybe you've come here today and you know that you're lost and you can't save yourself. You know that you're selfish and self-centered and you can't change it. You've tried and tried and tried. You, you know this about yourself, but you just are unable, impotent, lame, paralyzed. Actually, that is a really, really good place to be because most lost people never learn that fact about themselves. They all think that they're good people and that God is going to judge based on a curve. And if their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds, they're going to get in. And that's just a lie from Satan. God's standard is not the curve. God says you have to get an absolute 100% to make it into the kingdom. And you say, well, Lord, I, I haven't got 100%. I'm lucky if I've got 60, a D minus. <laughs> So is there any hope for someone like that? Jesus achieved 100%. And he's willing to give us that 100% if we trust him. He takes his righteousness, gives it to us. He takes our sin, sin, puts it on himself, and he dies to pay in full for our sin. That's why Jesus could say to this man, your sins are forgiven you. He knew that it was just a matter of about two, two and a half years, and he's going to the cross to put away sin.
His blood is going to cover sin. That's why he can tell him, your sins are forgiven you because I'm going to pay the penalty for them. I'm going to die in your place. So if you've come and you identify with this paralyzed man, that's good because you need to look away from yourself and look to Jesus Christ as the perfect Savior who can take away your sin forever. There's a scripture in the book of Hebrews that says that he has perfected forever those who are drawing near to him. Those that he is sanctifying. A perfect, eternal salvation is given to every person who trusts him. Isn't that great? It's not something that lasts for a few days, or a few months, or even a few years. It lasts for all eternity. The perfect righteousness put to our account lasts for all eternity. If it didn't last for eternity, there would be a day when it wouldn't be cast into hell. We might get to live in heaven for a few thousand years, but then it, whoop, it expired. We're out of there. You've got to have a perfect eternal righteousness, and that's what we have in the gospel, in the Lord Jesus. And then you might say, no, I don't really identify with either of those men because God has saved me. Well, do you identify with these four friends? I hope so. Are you determined that you're going to get your friends and your family and your neighbors into the presence of Jesus? You're willing to make the effort and the sacrifice and the cost necessary to do it. You're willing to take the embarrassment or maybe even rejection. That's really where we fail, isn't it? Because none of us likes rejection. All of us hates it. And we'd rather not say anything to anybody if it means that we're going to have to face a little bit of rejection. Hey, man, I understand that. I've knocked on hundreds of doors, and 99% of them were rejection. <laughs> it's hard. And sometimes I, it's everything I can do just to get up in my car and go, because I know what I'm facing. But Jesus died for sinners. He died for people like us. Are we going to keep this good news all to ourselves? Do you remember the story in the Old Testament about the four Jewish lepers? that were cast out of the people of Israel. And the people within the walls of Israel were all dying of starvation. There was a great famine. And they were, they were being laid siege by the Assyrians. And they finally got this crazy idea. Hey, we're dying here. They're dying there. Why don't we just go into the camp of the Assyrians and maybe, just maybe, they'll have mercy on us. I mean, what do we got to lose? If we stay here, we're going to die. So they went into the camp of the Syrians. You remember what had happened? God had routed their enemy, and there was spoil as far as they could see. Tables loaded with food. And here they were starving to death just a few miles away. And they had all this gold and silver and chariots and horses. And they go, wow, this is too good to be true. And after they were, they were gorging themselves, and then finally one of them said, what are we doing? This is a day of good news. Shouldn't we be telling our friends back in Israel? Folks, we're like the leper. <laughs> we're like the leper who we receive mercy and we receive spiritual riches beyond our wildest imagination. But what about the people that don't have it yet? Let's be like these four friends who carry our friends on the stretcher. We're going to get them there by hook or by crook. <laughs> uh, only people who've read my dad's Little no, we'll know what that means. <laughs> by hook or by crook, by any way imaginable, we're going to get our friends there. May God help us. You know, 
I, I, we haven't talked about this, but we're going to do something special this Easter. We're going to put on an Easter brunch right here. We're going we're to take the chairs down and put just tables all over this place. And we're going to have barbecues out here and we're going to make pancakes and sausage and bacon and orange juice and coffee and hot chocolate. And we're going to provide a lavish banquet and we're going to go around and invite thousands of people that live around this area and say, come join us. Free Easter brunch, a short mini gospel service, and we're going to do the whole thing in under two hours. And we're going to pray that God will bring some people to this place that need to hear about Jesus. And folks, we need you to help us. This is one of those times when it's, uh, we need everybody. All hands on deck. If we're going to pull this off, we've got a little enough church as it is. We need every single person to say, okay, I'm in. I'm going to help you do it. So, we want to bring our friends to Jesus. That's why we exist, isn't it? Why be a church if we're not going to obey Jesus' command and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that He commanded. Amen? Amen. Let's be like these four friends. And let's bring them to King Jesus, who's able to save. Lord, would you put within our hearts a new determination to bring our friends and family and neighbors to Jesus Christ. Because Lord, when, when we've died and we've entered eternity, what else will really have mattered? What will have mattered if we have wasted our life on ourselves? All of our wealth and our riches and our vacations and our hobbies and amusements, they're all going to burn. They're all going to be up in smoke. Only precious souls will have lasted and endured through your judgment. God, give us a single eye to your glory and to the salvation of, of souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.